Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We often use phrases in the church like, God will never give up on you. And I want to be clear before I get into this that that is true. Psalm 139 talks about, Lord, where shall I run from your spirit? Jonah tried to run from the Lord and God didn't let him go. That is a true thing to say and it's important for us to remember and it can be so encouraging to have in your heart that God's not going to give up on me. But as Bible students and as Christians who are desiring to grow in maturity, we have to be precise in how we understand certain teachings of Scripture. And we also need to be able to understand that two things can be true at the same time. For example, today. It is true that as long as you are struggling and striving, God is never going to give you up. If you keep pushing, and it doesn't matter if you keep failing, if you keep getting up and you keep on repenting and you keep going, the Lord is never going to say, right, that, you know what, that's enough. However, if you live your life in willful defiance of God, he will let you go. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says not to be deceived because God is not mocked. God is not mocked. We might say it like this. Are you going to treat me like a jerk? You're going to make it out like you can just do that and I'm just going to let it go? Well, God's, God's too kind for that. We have to be able to hold both of those truths to be true. That God never gives up on his people and that those who are even, even have the slightest desire and bit of faith to pursue the Lord, just that little mustard seed of faith that says, even though I failed, Lord, help me to keep going. God will not give you up. But at the same time, if all you ever say to God is, get out of my life, Eventually, God will do exactly that, which is what Paul says in this passage. Today in the United States of America, 2021, as has been true across time, across cultures, we are certainly not unique in this respect. We have a permissive morality that right and wrong is a matter of what would you like to do? And we do not fear God's retribution. The thief on the cross who mocked Christ, was rebuked by the other thief on the cross, who said, do you not fear God? Are you not even a little concerned that you mocking this righteous man is going to end badly for you when you stand before the throne of judgment? The world does not fear God's retribution. But we must. And today we're going to address some sacred cultural cows. And I'm going to try to be kind because the Lord's kindness leads us to repentance. But, you know, primarily this message today is not aimed at the sinner. It's aimed at the church. The church who knows Christ and is desirous to reach a lost generation and is wondering the best way to know how. We have to be strong in what the word says. Because Paul is going to describe here what happens to people who persist in unrighteousness. And if we are going to have some sort of doctrine that tells us you can persist in righteousness with no negative consequences, then we will be absolutely ineffectual in our gospel. Because the irony is, as we have tried to reinterpret the warning that Paul gives here, we have fallen right into the very thing he was warning us against. It's almost 
worthy of a double take when you hear what some people say about this passage as they strive with everything they can to make it mean the opposite of what it means. We're not going to do that. We love our Lord Jesus too much. After all he's done for us, we must obey his word. And also, his heavenly Father, our heavenly Father, is full of righteousness and justice. And we're not going to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as it said earlier in this passage. So let's back this up. Let's read verses 24 and 25. And I think you probably caught that rhythm, that repeated phrase that we saw through this passage. Verse 24 says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So we have in verse 24 a very strong therefore. The Greek word is dio there. I've been almost joking about it because of how frequent it is in the previous verses, the Greek word gar, which is for. It's an explanatory word. Say this, because of this, because of this, because of this. Then we hit the word 24, therefore, where Paul more or less comes to the end of that long train of explanation, and now he's going to draw a conclusion. Therefore. He's continuing his explanation of God's wrath, which is his explanation of the gospel. He said in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. And immediately he moves into the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against those who suppress the truth by unrighteousness. And he described that all last week. It's what we got into. And so knowing that he's talking about those who suppress the truth of God, who would rather believe that there is no God or that God is lesser than who he is so that you can fulfill your own passions. Verse 24 drops the gavel. Therefore, therefore what? God gave them up. That's a good translation. The literal translation would be give them over. But in English, when we say give up, that that has a lot of punch to it, which is what you ought to get out of that. That's a horrifying thing to read, that God gave them up. He gave them over. He removed his hand of restraint. It's important to know, we say give up. This is not a passive thing that God does, as if God just turns away. This is an active thing that God does. By removing his hand of restraint, by giving them up. The Old Testament uses the example of nations that have been given over to the false gods that they desire to worship. God removing his hand from a person's life. Before we get into any specifics, this is the first thing we need to know. Here is our general principle. When you persist in sin and you suppress the truth by your sin, God gives us up. The Holy Spirit is active in the world. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is out to convict us of the truth about God. That God has revealed it in nature, according to Romans chapter 1. But the Holy Spirit himself is always actively working to draw people to himself. And even as we sin, the Holy Spirit is still right there. Some of you all have a testimony that I was down, I was broken, I kept on messing up, but God never let me go, and now here I am. However, without at all trying to draw specific boundaries about what this means because the word does not. The Bible, Old Testament and New tells us that people and nations and the earth as a whole can go too far. That is absolutely biblical. We first see it back in Genesis chapter 6 when there was the horrific sin. You might even call it the worst sin other than the crucifixion that men ever committed, which was the the sexual intercourse with the Nephilim, with demons that produced the, the ancient giants and heroes that the Bible talks about. And the Lord says, my soul will not strive with men forever. I'm not going to put up with this. I'm not going to be mocked. I'm not going to let them flout my authority on the earth and expect that I'm going to let this happen. And that, of course, led to the flood. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16. God told Jeremiah, stop praying for these people. Stop praying for them. I'm not going to hear your prayers. Judgment is coming. And the whole book explains in great detail why that judgment was coming. Jeremiah's ministry was not one to bring about repentance, but to justify God in the judgment that he was going to bring against them. Which is why Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, because he prophesied for 40 years knowing he was not going to win a single convert. And he did not. We say, that's Old Testament though. The gospel has come. Jesus, Jesus doesn't do that anymore. Well, what about Mark 3, 29, where Jesus said, Every blasphemy against the Son will be forgiven, but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. 
And I'm not even going to get into what that is. The whole point is there is a point beyond which men can go where God says, enough. That's what Jesus says. But that was pre-cross. We always have these excuses, right? 1 John 5.16, John talks about those who sin. And you should be praying for those who are sinning. Pray that they'll come to repentance. But he gives this very cryptic, strange verse where he says, unless it is a sin leading to death. And if that is the case, I don't even say you should pray for that person. And again, we're not quite sure what that is. It's, pretty, it's much easier to say what it's not, I think, than to say what it is. The only point I'm trying to draw out today is that there is a point where the Lord and his prophets and his apostles will say, too far. God gives you up. He gives you over. I think the clearest example in scripture of this is that of Saul, the first king of Israel. Think about Saul. He was chosen by God. By the people, they didn't, want a, they didn't want the Lord, they wanted a king. So God gave them the kind of king they would want. Mostly it was a tall king, if you go back and read the story, which is why the story of Goliath means so much. Because Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else, but here comes Goliath. Well, they pick Saul, and Saul begins very well. He unites the kingdom, he worships the Lord, he listens to Samuel, but over time, Saul begins to believe his own press. He begins to hype himself up, and he begins to take it upon himself to hold the nation together rather than the Lord. There's a story that comes where they're getting ready to go into battle. They're supposed to offer sacrifices to the Lord, and Samuel's taken a long time. And Saul's like, we've got to move, we've got to move. You know what? People are getting ready to go. They're getting scared. They're going to leave because they're going to think that God's not with us. So you know what? I'll make the sacrifice. Big no-no. The Lord kept the king's and the priests and prophets very separate from one another. Uzziah would later get struck with leprosy for doing that, and he was one of the most righteous kings Israel ever had. But as Saul does that, Samuel shows up, and Saul makes his excuses, and that was a, was a bad scene, but it moves on. But then later on, the Lord sends Saul out to go and wipe out the Amalekites. He says, this nation, which has been so wicked and so awful, and I'm not going to get into reasons why today, he said, I want them all wiped out, all of them, top to bottom. Men, women, children, animals, houses. I don't even want you to take spoil. I, this is not about loot. This is not about territory. This is about my righteous judgment. Saul goes in and does none of that. He takes the best of the lambs and the cows. He takes the spoil. He keeps the king and the royal family alive. And Samuel rolls up and Saul says, Hey, I've done everything God asked me to do. And Samuel goes, Really? Then why do I hear sheep bleeding? And why do I hear cows mooing? He goes, well, listen, I know what you told me, but here's the deal. We're going to sacrifice all these animals. What about King Agag? Yes, well, you know, having a political prisoner is not such a bad idea. And Samuel rebukes him and he says, does the Lord desire burnt sacrifice more than obedience? And that's that famous phrase, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to hear than the fat of rams. And that's when Samuel personally executed the Amalekite King Agag. It says he hacked him into pieces before the Lord. That's the justice of God. But here's the thing. In the middle of that, Saul's not sorry. Saul doesn't, doesn't get it. And Samuel says, you know what? I'm leaving. I'm out of here. And, and Saul says, no, please come back. Don't go. And he rips his robe. And he says, just like my robe has been torn, God's torn the kingdom from you. Which is why later on when David's hiding in the cave, what does he do to Saul's robe? He cuts it off and there's David standing with the, the torn robe. It's a symbol there. But does Saul care? No, he says, but please come back because the people will leave if they don't think you're with me. And Samuel goes, fine, I'll go with you. But Samuel never came to Saul again. And it says at that point, 1 Samuel 16, 14. The next story we have is the anointing of David. And in 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now before this, Saul was headstrong. Saul was like your typical jock, right? He just was, do it his way. You're going to follow me. He became just like everybody else. But he was still loyal to the Lord. He still loved his country. He still wanted at some level to do things right. But when God removed his Holy Spirit, removed that hand of restraint, what happens? He becomes suspicious of everybody around him. He becomes a murderer. He tries to kill David. He tries to kill his own son. He becomes not the man that drove all the witchcraft out of Israel, but he goes seeking out a witch to prophesy for him. And at the end of his life, rather than being the brave soldier that stood against the Philistine army countless times, he panics in battle and kills himself. 
Going into a battle he should not have gone into and his own sons die for it. That's the difference between somebody being restrained by the Lord and God removing the restraint on somebody's life. You can look at Samson, Judges 16, 20. Little different because Samson repented, but I think it's a good illustration. Samson did all kinds of stuff that was rotten, and why is God still using this guy? But when he finally gave up this, the, the secret of his strength, so to speak, his hair, and it was cut, that's when the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. There's an illustration for you of the Lord saying, you know what, fine, have it your way. Or Judas, John 13, 27. Judas had been an apostle, which means he baptized people, he healed people, he cast out demons, he preached the gospel. But he also would steal money out of the money bag. He was a thief. He rebukes Mary for pouring out that alabaster flask on Jesus. He goes to the, the priests and he says, hey, I'll deliver you to Jesus for a couple bucks. And all to that point, Judas had the chance to turn back until they're sitting together at dinner. And they said, who's going to betray you, Lord? And he says, whoever I give this, this piece of bread to. And he turns out and he hands it to Judas. And what does Judas do? He takes it. And it says in John 13, 27, at that moment, Satan entered Judas. We even could look historically. Some have used this to describe Emperor Nero. Emperor Nero was a, a reasonable emperor for the beginning of his reign. And tr- church history tells us that Paul appeared before Nero twice. The first time was after what we read in the book of Acts and in the book of Romans. And he appeared before Nero and was let go. Nero let him go, fine. But Paul preached the gospel to him and he rejected it in that moment. And the church historians and the church fathers believe after that is when Nero began to begin his murderous persecution of the Christians. And they saw that as a mark that when the gospel came to him and he rejected it, God removed his restraining hand on Nero's life. That's not scripture. That's just a historical example. Maybe you've even seen it in your own life. You ever have a family member or a friend who is constantly breaking their life into pieces? They always come back. They always try to get it right. They're always sorry. But then they they reach a point where they do something and you're talking to them and you're like, this isn't you. Something's changed about you. God removes his restraining hand. The willful degradation of the heart. And the example Paul uses here is idolatry. To stop worshiping the God of creation and instead worship the creation itself. To imagine that God is something like a cow or a tree It degrades not only your spirit, it degrades your mind. We read last week how God allows your mind to become degraded. You're futile in your thinking. And this week he's talking about you're going to dishonor your body as well. Because Psalm 115 verse 8 and elsewhere says that those who worship those dumb idols become like them. It is a spiritual fact that you become like what you worship. Jesus said out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. However a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And whatever you worship, whether that is an idol you're bowing down to, or whether that is a nameless idol that you have exalted in your heart, you will become like that. He talks about those who are in lust of their hearts. God gives them over. When you reject God, especially for the lust of your body, and he's going to talk primarily about sexual lust here, then you will become dominated by that sexual lust. Because it's your God. Now, I'm going to say this. What Paul is saying here, I think primarily this passage applies at a 30,000 foot level. I think it primarily applies as humanity has rejected God. We rejected the knowledge of God and went after idolatry and have been given over. I think it also can apply, we see it mostly in scripture, to nations and societies. Where God goes, I've had enough with Assyria. It's time for them to be judged. And even Judah as well. It also can happen at a personal level. But I will say this. Most people are not at this hopeless rejected state. Even those who engage in some of the sins we're going to discuss. Whereas as in they're, they're hopeless, there's no chance for them. But what we do need to understand by this passage is that willful defiance of God will lead to a willful abandonment by God. People don't stumble into this kind of state. They force themselves into it. And then we have the audacity to blame God, which is simply foolish. But God gave them over for suppressing that truth and persisting in their unrighteousness. God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason, again, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men 
and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So Paul is, in this section, giving us a key example of what this looks like. What does Paul mean when he talks about the degrading of the mind, the degrading of the body, the suppression of the truth? The primary example he gives is that of homosexuality. And I realize that the things that we read and that I'm about to say are absolutely out of bounds for many people. And there are some quarters where even some of the things we're going to say this morning might be considered illegal or at least arguably illegal. But what does God have to say? There have been efforts to reinterpret this passage to mean something other than what it's obviously talking about, which is homosexuality. And people will say things like, well, the church has had lots of different opinions on this throughout history. That's not the case. There were two major efforts to reinterpret this passage. And the first one came in 1980. The second one came in 1983, which is a little suspicious according to our timeline, is it not? That all of a sudden... When the world began to approve homosexuality, we rediscovered that the Bible was okay with it all this time. And people have suggested many different things, none of which are particularly wholesome that it talks about here. People will say, no, no, no. This is not talking about the normal American loving kind of homosexuality that we're familiar with. What it's talking about is pederasty or child molestation. That's what it's talking about here. Now, that's, this was rampant in Greco-Roman culture. It's particularly in Greek culture. It was considered unmanly by Romans for obvious reasons, but it filtered into the society because those two more or less melded together. But young men and young boys would often even pursue these kinds of relationships with older, more well-off men because they figured it would help us rise in society and things like that. So it was very common at that time. They say, no, no, this is just referring to prostitution homosexual prostitution. And that was also rampant at this time. The different temples, there were, I believe it was the, uh, the god Ganymede that they worshipped in particular, had homosexuality as part of the worship. So that happened too. People said, no, 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 this is talking about abuse, or it's talking about rape, or it's talking about adultery, that if there is a, a man who's married to a woman and then goes and has this kind of relationship with another man, well, that, of, and listen, all of that happened, and all of it is bad, Right? None of that is okay. But the question that we have to ask is, what is this passage talking about? Just because you can say there was something that happened in that culture that could kind of fit under this umbrella, this doesn't mean you can toss out the rest of it. Look at the language here. And I'm going to take some time to explain this to you because I know y'all get hit with this all the time. Somebody, maybe even a face you recognize and trust as a believer, will stand up and say, that's not what the Bible says. Or they'll just throw it out flippantly on TV. Christians don't, don't believe that anymore. We now know what the Bible actually teaches. Let me show you what the Bible actually teaches. Look at what he says. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise. So the things, well, natural relations, people will even use this. So, you know, if you have a homosexual nature, then, then that's okay. If you have a straight nature, well, that's okay. That's not what he's saying. And I think that's obvious to you as well. But look, just to be clear and, and obvious, likewise, so likewise, whatever he described about women is likewise happening in verse 27. Natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. There's no question here what he's talking about. Natural relations, that, that word for relations actually is the Greek word use. And it is very frequently used as a euphemism for sexual activity. So the, the words that he's saying are, are there's no question what he's talking about here. Being burning with passion for someone of the same sex and committing that kind of act with that person. Men or women, do you see that? And the verdict is clear. Dishonorable. Contrary to nature. Shameless. He calls it an error. Well, see, well, Paul was, Paul was just a man of his time. This is just what they said at the time. The, the scriptures... Every time it talks about this, it condemns it. Every time. Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Chapter 20, verse 13, will say the exact same thing and actually will prescribe the penalty of death for both parties if that happens. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. This is in the middle of a long list of sins. So I'm just going to shorten it so that it just has the, the one that we're talking about today. 
It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Men who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that passage right there, men who practice homosexuality, is actually two Greek words that refer specifically and technically to the passive and active partner in a homosexual relationship. It's so explicit, none of our Bibles have translated it that way. There is no getting around this. 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10 says, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. He gives a list of examples, one of which is men who practice homosexuality and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Old Testament, New Testament. To say nothing, of course, of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, where the men, there was a mob that came after these angels. Let us lie with these men that have come here. And there are folks who say, no, 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 this was a lack of hospitality. Abraham received the angels. They didn't receive the angels. That's why God was going to destroy them. Jude, verse 7, says that they were destroyed because they pursued unnatural desire. Literally, their strange flesh. Let men say what they will. And I've, I've had this conversation with people before, and there's really not a whole lot to say afterwards. You can say whatever you want to say. Don't come at me and tell me the Bible is okay with this. Call it bigoted, call it out of its time, call it offensive, but don't come to me and and tell me that it's okay with it, because it's not. Well, the New Testament says that we're not going to be judged for our sins anymore. You clearly have not read the New Testament. And I I don't even try to be joking when I say that. People will say things like that and say, no, you clearly have not read this. Jesus said all the time, have you not read? And sometimes you wonder, have you not? And very often the answer is no. The Bible universally and without exception condemns homosexuality of every kind. The other common example here, what about David and Jonathan? It says that David loved Jonathan and that his love was better than that of a woman. So see, there you go. First of all, David was a man after God's own heart. And the Lord had no problem rebuking David for those kinds of sins. Secondly, all that shows about our culture is that we do not know how to have intimacy with a person without a sexual dimension. And that's another lesson for another time. But if we look at somebody who is so close and say that these these guys were so close, it's like their wives weren't even that close with one another. We look at it, well, then there must clearly have been a sexual dimension to that. That says more about us than it does about them. Nor is it fair to say, and this is the other thing, when people kind of get stuck and they realize, okay, the Bible says that this is wrong. What they want to then argue is the Bible must be wrong. And they can't just come out and say that. So here's what they'll say. Paul and Moses, they all wrote to a specific culture and a specific time. They wrote out of that specific culture and out of that specific time. So they had to figure out how to live life for Christ within that culture. And we have to do the same for ours. And we just can't say things like that anymore. We'll say, we know better now. We know differently. First of all, that is so postmodern. Anybody who chases that, that rabbit always ends up denying everything else. Anybody that begins arguing that way, that the Bible is culturally grounded and so are we, therefore we should pick and choose which parts of the Bible we believe, just a hop, skip, and a jump to, I've decided that I'm no longer an evangelical. My journey has brought me, you know, that whole thing. Well, how do we know it's not cultural? Well, let me show you. These prohibitions are not grounded in culture. The reason Paul says this is wrong is not because of their culture. The ones we read, he grounds it in God's will. Leviticus 18 and 20 says this is an abomination before God. So there's anybody's will and culture and opinion we care about. It's God's. And the God never changes. He grounds it in sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 1 says this is opposed to sound doctrine. And is it not the case that when you go soft on sound doctrine, you immediately begin to go soft on moral issues as well? Sometimes it goes the other way. But most importantly, he grounds this in nature itself. You know, this is what the Bible always does when it talks about the relations between the sexes, between men and women. It always goes back to nature, which for us is creation. There really shouldn't be a separation between those two things, but that's how our time tends to talk about it. But it goes back to Genesis. Now, he's not referring specifically to Genesis here, except that you don't see this in in your English translation, but in these verses, when he says men and women, he's not using the normal word for man and woman, which would be aner and gune. 
which also can mean wife. That, that is specifically referring to what we might call gender, what we might call the expression of men and women, a wife or a husband. He uses the words, what we might say in English, male and female, using biological, technical terms to refer to the differences between the sexes, which is what the Old Testament does as well. Genesis chapter 1, God created the male and female, and the two shall become one flesh. This is what Jesus did when they asked him about marriage, remember? Do you not know that God created them in the beginning, male and female, and the two shall become one flesh? Later on, when Paul talks about order in the church, when he talks about that men should lead and women should submit to that leadership, he says, for Adam was created first. He always goes back to that. But of course, in our culture, when we want to talk about this issue, we don't want to talk about nature. We don't want to talk about the act itself. Have you noticed that? When we're talking about homosexuality, the long acronym that just keeps on getting longer, LGBT, on it goes. We're never talking about nature. We're never talking about the act. We're never talking about what's actually going on. The conversation stays off of the action and onto the person and their life and their identity and their passion. By the way, the passion is condemned here too. What does he call it? Dishonorable passion. Unnatural desire, it calls it. Dishonorable passion. So those that want to say, well, this is just who I am. This is just what, I, you know, what I'm passionate about. I'm not going to do anything about it. Well, God wants you to get your heart in line too, not just your actions. It's one thing if it's a temptation. It's another thing if you've chosen to define yourself by this passion. And I might add too, all kinds of passion are, are not permitted for a Christian. Because biblically, passion refers to being carried away by your desires and your emotions which should never be done for a Christian. The only thing that carries us away is the Holy Spirit. But the conversation is always away from nature. We never want to talk about the act. It's very similar to the abortion conversation, right? We want to talk about it in terms of rights, in terms of women, in terms of what's, what should legally be allowed. You begin talking about the actual specific thing that we're talking about itself. Everybody gets angry. And we go, wait a minute. Why, what, we can't talk about this, but this is what we're discussing. Well, that's not... That's not Appropriate to talk about in public and say to front of people, but you just said that it should be permitted and celebrated and marched about, but we don't want to talk about what it actually is. The same thing. When we say the word gay, people want to talk about a cultural lifestyle instead of the action that these two men are committing with one another. You bring that up and you go, well, that's just, that's just it's gross. I don't want to talk about that. You see, even right there, we get it. And also, I think that the people that are trying to promote this are very smart and they know that if they keep the conversation on that, people are going to be like, no, that's not right. And that is unnatural. But if we just focus on, well, why shouldn't they be allowed to be happy? Oh, that's easy. That's easy to talk about. Who's going to stand up and be anti-happy, right? But Paul comes out and says, this is against nature. Because men and women, while I'm trying to be delicate from the pulpit, men and women are physically and biologically made for one another. And you are using your body in such acts in a dishonorable way, which is not how God created it, solely to serve your own passion. That's what Paul says. If you dishonor God in your heart, God removes the restraints on your mind. And it becomes degraded. And you start believing that sexual passion for the same sex is desirable and should be permissible. That's a degrading of your mind to believe that. That's not natural. It's not normal. And then to act on such desire goes beyond degrading your mind. You've now degraded your body. Amen. Paul cites homosexuality as the cultural marker of being given over by God. People say, you're talking about suppressing the truth. What do you mean suppressing the truth? How about suppressing the truth that men and women are biologically compatible and designed for one another? In so doing, you're rejecting the God that created you. And people want to stand and say these things that just give me chills. Well, God made me this way. You're not acting how God made you. You're choosing to use your body in a way that is inconsistent with how God has made you. Now, if that's the example that Paul chooses to use here, what does that say about our country? Well, it makes it pretty obvious if you ask me. We've taken our idea of liberty and freedom. We've applied that not just to where it's appropriate. We've applied it everywhere. Now, you can do whatever you want. You can be whatever you want. Oh, that sounds so great. But what about dishonorable things? 
about shameful things. The only thing that restrains us is the outrage of society. And there are people that have gotten so good at slowly undermining and wearing down that outrage to where now it's all permissible. The church has warned. And there's a the thing. I, I, I don't want to condemn the church because the church has been there calling this out for a long time. Great men of God especially have stood up Waving the banner, say, we cannot permit this. They say, well, you're just being a bigot. You're just being, you say, if you let this go, if you let free love, free sex go, then what's going to happen to marriage? Nothing's going to happen to marriage. You're crazy. The divorce rate falls to pieces. Well, I guess we can do, no, we can't. Marriage has to remain sacred. If you think that marriage can be thrown away, then who knows what it will become? Oh, you're just a bigot. You're just hateful. You don't understand what people are going through. Now we're pushing for gay marriage. You can't allow that to happen. If we do this, this is going to continue to erode the differences between men and women to the point where everything's going to become permissible. That's ridiculous. Well, here comes the transgender thing. Now men can become women. In fact, men are born women and women are born men. And you can't even say what someone is by looking at them. The biology no longer matters. That's not a suppression of the truth. And what do we say? If we do that, if you keep on pushing the sexual orientation thing, then who's to say somebody can't be a pedophile or somebody can't have some other kind of deviation? And the world comes out and says, you're so bigoted and you're so wicked. Why would you say things like that? And it seems like every other day I'm seeing something else where somebody's subtly trying to push this thing in there. The church has been out there waving the red flag. And sometimes even we as believers look back and say, oh, those guys, yeah, they were kind of hateful. No, they were not. They were canaries in the coal mine hollering, letting everybody know, don't go this way. So I'm going to just say it. We know it, but it needs to be said. Homosexuality of every kind is a vile and terrible evil. Evil. It is wicked. It is a mark that God has removed his hand of restraint. It's not cute. It's not to be celebrated. It's to be mourned and to be denounced. And the world has just got us by the throat on this because they say, well, then you don't love us. And we want to be seen as loving, don't we? We just want to be seen. You know, we've got to get over that. My dad used to say to me sometimes when people would push me around when I was younger, he'd say, I said, well, they said I was being mean. Were you being mean? No. Then who cares what they say? Thanks, dad. Right? <laughs> Same thing for us. You say, this is wrong and it's wicked and you can't do that. Well, you're just hateful. I don't hate you. Well, I think you do. Well, I don't care about your opinion. We've got to get over that. And can I say this too? And this might be something some of y'all need to hear. It doesn't matter if the person is nice. This is the problem. People will say, I used to think homosexuality was wrong and then I met a gay person. And they're great. They're so nice. They're so kind. They helped me with my yard. They're nice with my kids. They fixed my car. That's great. They need Jesus. They don't repent. They'll go to hell. It doesn't matter what your sin is. Every one of us has, has that addict friend who's a lot of fun to be around. They're great. They're nice. You call them up in the middle of the night, and if they're sober, they're over there. Hands down, right? But they're still desperate in sin. Are you just going to say, well, they're so nice. I, I guess it's okay if they continue this way. No, that's not loving them well. You ever tried to help somebody who's dealing with a problem, and they've got this friend over here that just continues to enable and let them continue doing what they're doing? You, it's infuriating. And I can I put this especially to, to you women, especially you younger women. I see this all the time. This is not scripture, it's something I've observed. That young girls, as they're growing up, you know, they're teenagers, maybe even a little older, it becomes fun and trendy to have a gay friend. And you know what happens, and this is the part that makes me angry, but you have a young man who's maybe awkward around other guys, right? Maybe he's not athletic, maybe he's not tough, whatever. He likes the same things that the girls like. He also really likes these girls, but he doesn't quite know what to do, so he hangs out with them a lot, but he doesn't really have any, any game, so to speak, right? He can't, like, take it to the next level. So you know what these girls begin to say? Maybe you're gay. Maybe you're gay. This girl that he's over here trying to flirt with, trying to start a relationship with, maybe you're gay. And of course, he hangs out with the guys all the time, so the guys don't want to be around him, and then they say things like, oh, dude, you're so gay. And he starts to think, maybe I am. And then he tells one of these young ladies, I think I might be gay. And what do they do? That's so great. And now he's being accepted and celebrated. And let's go out. And you can come to our thing. And you're part of us. And here's a parade for you. And here's a whole other family for you to be part of. Got to be careful. We got to watch out for that. And gentlemen, you also need to be willing to take the time with somebody who is perhaps not like you. 
Perhaps he doesn't get the guy thing as easily as you do. Maybe he didn't have a father, because that's incredibly common. Maybe his father was abusive to him, so he doesn't know what it's like to be a good man. I've known guys that say, I don't want to be, why would I want to be a man like him? Say, no, no, don't be a man like him, be a man like me. Let me show you. Older gentlemen, you got to step in. This is your responsibility. Younger guys, it's our responsibility too. Because Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And then the accusation always comes in. Why do y'all talk about this so much? You're obsessed with it. There's all kinds of other sins, but this is the one you talk about. They're not throwing parades in the streets for people who have anger issues, demanding that we celebrate it, demanding that it be accepted into your house and that your children be allowed to see it, demanding that you legally have to accept this and approve this or else you're not going to be allowed to function anymore. The world is speaking louder and louder. And that's another one of those disingenuous gaslighting kind of things. You've got to learn to let roll off your back. You hate us. No, we don't. We hate sin and you are bound up in sin and we're trying to help you. Well, that's just your culture. Culture's changed and you've got to get used to it. Not about culture. The culture Paul was writing to proved this stuff just as much as we do, if not more. Well, you're, you're phobic, right? You're afraid. You don't understand it because you're afraid. Nope. It's not fear, unless it's the fear of God, who has warned us that sins like that, when they are widespread, are a mark of his displeasure and judgment. So as we see it on the rise, we do become afraid because it tells us that God is beginning to execute his wrath, to reveal his wrath, as he says in verse 18, right? When you reject the truth of God, you leave all truth behind. And I'll just say it for us, us, not them, as the United States of America We ought to be ashamed of ourselves. It's shameful. As Paul said, verse 28 through 31. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, before we become proud, reading that passage and say, get him, Tyler. It's about time somebody finally said that. Well, it might be. But Paul continues with other examples of a debased mind. How about covetousness? Do we excuse that? How about malice and envy? Envy of somebody else that leads to hatred of that person. Willing to tear them down. Not even so that you can have what they have, just so that they don't have what they have. Do we put up with gossips and slanderers? How much of your online social media activity consists of gossip and slander? Somebody's got to say it. No, they don't. Who's haughty? Who's boastful? Or disobedient to parents. All these things are markers of God's judgment. Now, are all of these things markers that God has abandoned you and you've hit the point of no return? Not necessarily. Right? There are, there are homosexual men and women that get saved every day. Like I said, this is best to look at from the, that broad view, right? From the top down. However, Any of these things can be the mark that God has given you over. To make a virtue and a lifestyle out of any of these things is a sign that you have suppressed the righteousness and the truth of God. And you know, like I've said several times, he said in verse 27, receiving the due penalty for their error. Sin does that. Sin brings hell around you long before you ever get there. It wrecks your life. It rips it to pieces. There are countless men who have been saved out of the gay lifestyle that will tell you everything looks glamorous and then it falls to a million pieces. They're warning, they're speaking, they're calling out. Sin is a virus. And when you walk in haughtiness or insolence or malice or deceit, you're spreading the virus. You're making more hell on earth, which is why the wrath of God is revealed against those things. Because sin does not make anything better. It only makes it worse. 
The point that he's making here, and we ought to get here, is that whatever a culture permits or prohibits is irrelevant. Only God's truth matters. And we as Christians ought to look at some of those things and examine ourselves. Ephesians 4, verse 17 through 20, Paul wrote, I say this and testify in the Lord. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. These passages are connected. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Now listen, later on in this passage, in this book, Paul's going to talk about God's grace in ways that are going to make us stand up and cheer. But all of that is set against the backdrop of God's wrath against sin. People love to be flippant. Well, saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. Oh, so God's just going to send me to hell? Yes. You're going to say, well, God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. Both of those things are true. God will send you to hell. He will judge you for that. Well, that's not fair. I didn't know. Paul's already said, you should have known. You know enough to stop that and to pursue God because everyone who seeks finds. So are you resisting God? Are you trying to act as if his truth is not real whenever it suits your flesh? This is what baffles me about some of these Bible teachers. They're rock solid on everything and insisting on the text and insisting on the doctrine, insisting on church history. And then they get to something that's touchy and they go, well, here are the options. Let's see. I don't know if we can be dogmatic. Why? Because it's your thing or it's our thing? You'll go over to, the, to Nepal, you'll go over to South America, you'll go over to Eastern Europe, and you'll preach rock-solid gospel. You must repent of your ways. And then you come home and you go, well, I just don't know if we can say this is wrong anymore. And we can all agree that homosexuality might be a heinous act, but you've got to start to learn your own sin with that same horror and that same revulsion and that same reluctance to even talk about it. Because as he says, it ought not to be done. In verse 32, here's where we're going to bring it home. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So again, he's emphasizing this whole chapter is about suppressing already possessed knowledge. You know what's right and you're suppressing it. Sin leads to death. That is a truth that people have suppressed. People know it. In their, in their weaker moments, so to speak, in their unguarded moments, when they're sick, when they're tired, when they're desperate, people panic. What's going to happen when I die? I'm going to go to hell. I'm going to die. Uh, if I die, then I, I, can't, I can't go on. I've got to stay alive as long as I can to get this right. Because people know, but they don't want to live that way. As soon as everything gets better, they, they want to shove that back into the corner and go back to living the way they were. But look at what Paul says. Those who give approval to sin deserve to die equally with those who commit those sins. You know, later on in church history, we have copies of the book of Romans where scribes would try to insert little phrases to make that verse not as strong as it is. So it can't be right that somebody who approves a sin is just as guilty as somebody that commits it. The person that stands by and watches the concentration camp guard abuse those prisoners is just as guilty as the one that committed the act himself, is he not? You're comparing this to that? Oh, yes, I am. It's like Pontius Pilate, Matthew 27. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew they were giving him over for envy. He knew that this whole thing was a joke. And instead, he takes a bowl and washes his hands and says, I have nothing to do with this. You do whatever you're going to do. And we look at that and we go, oh, come on. You're the one that has the authority to say no, and you chose not to. Church history and legend tells us that Pontius Pilate spent the rest of his life compulsively washing his hands. I don't know if that's true or not, but it sure sounds like it would be true. We cannot just stand by and expect to get by. And I'm going to go ahead and, and aim the guns inward a little bit here, because I was getting so angry when I was studying for this. Because even the writers and the preachers are scared to death just to come out and say what this passage means. They'll put it in the say now, they'll be very careful to put it this way. Paul thinks, Paul says, it would seem the text indicates. 
And every now and then you get one of those guys to come out and say, this is wrong and it must be affirmed that it's wrong and we're not doing anybody any favors. And then the next guy comes along and says, mealy mouths. Well, I mean, we've got to remember that Paul was writing from a Jewish perspective and this was kind of the Gentile thing. So it's really less about that. And instead, rather than coming out, even if they must, by virtue of their own Bible study, admit that this is a sin, they choose instead not to chastise the sin, but to chastise the church and the way they've responded to that sin. Instead of saying, this is wrong and must be confronted, we'll say, it's no different than any other sin. Like that makes it any better? Like that makes it any better that it's no different from any other sin? It's not fair for us to single this sin out and call it out. Some Christians are just obsessed with all this. Well, the world's obsessed with it. We just went through a whole month where the world was just slapping you across the face with it. So if you don't accept this, you're a bad person and we're coming for you. Or they say, well, it's no reason to hate anybody. Can I just say that? I, I've been in church my whole life. I went to Bible college. I spend time around Christians mostly. I've worked for Christians. I went to a Christian high school. I have never met this theoretical, frothing at the mouth, hateful Christian that everybody talks about. Who's the, who's the Christian out there hating them, hating the gays, hating the trans? I've never met that person. I'm sure he's out there somewhere. But most, if not almost all Christians, are brokenhearted over this. And in some moments, would almost rather it wasn't in there, but I'm bound by the scripture. So why am I going to let somebody's accusation that doesn't apply to me affect the way that I live? I'm certainly not going to stand up here and shake my finger at you, because I know you. And I know that's not you. So I'm not going to apply somebody else's attitude to you. Or say, well, we're just going to let God work on people. We're just going to let God do his thing. I'm not going to say anything. What? Is that what we've called to do? Paul told Timothy, preach the word, rebuke, exhort with full authority. Don't let anybody disregard you. Stand up for yourself, Timothy. And when they want to debate with you, you stand up and say, I'm the pastor and the elder, and this is what the word says. I think all those excuses, and here's the thing, all those things are technically true, right? It's technically true that homosexuality is not in some special category of sin. It's technically true that there's no reason to hate people or any of those things. But listen, all those things are covers for cowardice because people are looking for the nicest thing they can possibly say about this community rather than preaching what the text says. I, I want to support them and promote them, but I can't, so I'll just, I'll just be as nice as possible. In fact, what you don't say is often as important as what you do say. Oh, I didn't say anything wrong. Yeah, but you didn't come out and say what it's about. I preach Romans 1.24. Yeah, but were you preaching against homosexuality or pre preaching against Christians? Preaching against a lot of people that aren't doing that. Everyone is desperate to make nice. And I don't know if this is a fearful thing. I don't know if people are in these universities or the seminaries and they're afraid they're going to lose their jobs. I don't know if people maybe disagree with Paul but don't want anybody to know about it, so they're going to try to avoid not saying it. Everyone's desperate to make nice. Amen. But you know what it says in the book of Micah? And this is a hard thing for me to say, but I'm going to say it. Micah's prophecy in many ways was calling out all these false prophets and false teachers. Because Micah would say one thing, and they'd say, well, what about all these guys over here? Micah says, therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets. The day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. And I'll say the same thing for these commentators and theologians and pastors and Christian leaders of whatever stripe who stand up and refuse to say what the Bible says when this is the issue of our day, the sun shall go down on them and the Lord is not going to honor them or acknowledge them anymore. Verse eight, he says, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah says, what's the difference between them and me? I'm filled with the Spirit of God. I have the truth of God. And I'll say to you right now, I stand here speaking with the authority of God's word. And you disregard me today to your own peril. Because I'm so great, because I'm full of the Spirit of God, and I've got God's word right in front of me, and I know what it says. To declare to America their transgression. To declare to the United States their sin. Everybody wants to hear from the pastor until it comes up against their thing. 
I've talked about this before. But people will say, what does the Bible say here? Tell me what this passage says. But the minute what it says from me contradicts it, all of a sudden I'm one among many. The pastor just one among, well, you know, I've, I've done my own research and here's what I think. I've found this own YouTube channel that tells me that I can do this. I've found my own author, my own thing, my own that. Can I tell you, there's been no new revelation from the Holy Spirit to add to the scriptures and nullify these passages. There's been no updated Bible study method. There's been no point like the church has had in the past where a man of God stands up waving his Bible and says, right here, we've been wrong. What happened? Culture shifted. And the church wanted to shift with the culture. But the Bible is a canon. It's a standard. It's a measuring rod. It's a reed that doesn't move. We cannot give approval to people who suppress the truth of God in righteousness. Why? Because we've been called to herald the truth of God in righteousness. Our job is to stand up and shine the light into people's lives. And when we shine it on them and they say, get that away from me, John 3, they prefer darkness. We can't say, oh, excuse me, you're fine. That's where you've got to keep shining the light. We rupture the gospel when we tell people that they don't need to repent of things that Jesus bled and died on the cross for. Jesus died on the cross for the man and the woman struggling with homosexuality. He died on the cross for that. Their sin put him on that cross. And for us to come to them with Jesus hanging there on the cross, bleeding out, Father, why have you forsaken me? And we say, you're fine. You don't need to change a thing. We disregard the gospel. We defile, we blaspheme what Jesus has done. He bled and died on the cross for that. And people want to say things like, well, let me tell you my story. I only have one story, and it's the story of Jesus. It starts with Adam and Eve in the garden. The middle part has Jesus dying on the cross and coming out of that tomb, and it's going to end with him reigning in justice over the whole world, and you better get ready. And let the world do what it's going to do. I'm going to make a promise to you that here, in this place, at the very least, we shall maintain the truth of the gospel. We shall maintain the truth about sin until the Lord returns. And that might feel like spitting in the wind. I'll tell you, it feels like it to me. What, I'm going to stand against the darkness with this tiny little corner office that we're meeting in? The Lord's like, yes, you do it. You stand up, you speak. And the Lord will give us whatever audience, whatever voice he sees fit to give us. But I don't care if it's one person. We shall continue to preach the truth. Because I, I can't stand idly by and let my country and my countrymen, which I love so much. Oh, we just had the 4th of July. I saw the flag and the fireworks and they're playing all those old songs and my heart swells up. I, I love it so much. That's why I cannot let the, the nation rush to its own impending doom like lemmings off a cliff without standing and saying loudly and clearly what is right. Is this passage teaching us that God's given up on America? No, but it tells us that he sent us enough warning signs that we better start taking him seriously. And I do realize that I'm preaching to the choir here. I know y'all are on my team. I know y'all believe the word. I know y'all love Jesus Christ. But what is this for? This is to stiffen your spine and mine. To be able to stand and be brave and say no. You've got to say no. Because it will continue to steamroll if people don't start saying no. Because there are few things more horrifying than being left to your own fate and your own lusts by God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, remember? That's how the tribulation starts. It says the Lord removes his restraint from the Antichrist. So most of what you read in Revelation, all the terrible judgment, all the things going on, most of that is God just letting people do what they're going to do. Doing to the whole world what he did to Saul and to Judas and to Satan himself. But in the meantime, we might be like the prodigal son with the pigs eating the pods, eating the slop. But as long as that is the case, as long as there is still a church around here, that remains hopeful that we may, like the prodigal son did, come to our senses and return to our heavenly father who will come running for us and put the ring upon our fingers and slay the fatted calf and say, my son has returned home. And for those of you who may be dealing with this, where you're struggling with these kinds of passions and lusts in your hearts, 
Romans 12.2, we're going to get to it in a few months probably, says that you by the gospel can be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God wants to take your mind and completely change it. Well, that can't happen. You're just going to have to deal with it your whole life. No, no, that's not true. Don't let anybody tell you that. Don't let well-meaning Christians tell you that. Believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power to turn the world upside down. You can be liberated from your passions. You can be set free from sin by the grace of God, which is why we, knowing that that is possible, this is why we, trusting that the one that has betrayed Christ can be Peter and not Judas, this is why we have to stand against an insolent enemy with tears in our eyes. We don't say, no, I hate you. We say, no, please, don't do this. God, this morning is extending his hand of mercy. Revelation 2.21, God talks about sometimes he gives people space to repent. Mm -hmm. Why hasn't God judged us yet? Because God wants us to repent. Scorn that, and he may give up. Hell awaits those who persist in sin. The homosexual will not enter the kingdom of God, nor will the liar, nor will the thief, nor will the murderer, And nor will the coward. 